while the word grace appears more than 150 times in our Bibles, it is not a surprise that in the world in which we live, it is difficult for people to truly get a handle on what we mean when we talk about grace. We live in a world in which many people, on one hand, feel entitled, and we feel like we deserve things just by virtue of our existence. But on the other hand, we sometimes are conditioned to be the kind of folks that earn everything, that work our way there. You've read the books and maybe seen the commercials. If you get up early enough, if you put in enough work, if you do the right things, not only will you succeed, but when you do, you can stand on top of life's podium, pat yourself on the back, and congratulate yourself for all of the hard work that you and you alone have done. And while there is a time and a place for human exertion and effort and work and achievement, an overabundance of that will cloud our judgment and our ability to see grace as it truly is, as it's presented by God in Scripture. The grace of God is an Old and New Testament idea. You read about it as early as Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Later on, Ezra will say in Ezra chapter 9 and verse 8, when he and his contemporaries come back from Babylonian captivity, that a little grace has been granted to us to come home. Ezra 9 and verse 8. But though you read about it in the Old Testament and many individuals in the Old Testament did the very best that they could to live faithful lives to God, the reality is they often fell short of perfection and of being all that they could have been or needed to be. But when we get into the New Testament and you and I are introduced to Jesus Christ, we see in that moment. God's grace personified, God's grace exhibited on a scale that people in the Old Testament longed for and desired to see, but never truly did. The grace of God is amazing, and we need to emphasize and embrace it. When you say the grace of God, religious people typically have one of several types of thoughts concerning the grace of God. On the one hand, when some people hear the grace of God, what they think it means is all human responsibility and involvement is removed. All grace means is God's going to do everything. And in fact, any human involvement whatsoever nullifies grace and is actually the enemy of grace. But then on the other hand, there are those that when they hear the grace of God, what they think it means is it's just God's permission to try really hard and then to hopefully do their best to please him. And then there are those in the middle that have no idea what grace is all about. They just think it's the thing we say before we eat dinner. But God's grace is something that we can't please him without comprehending. Peter says in first Peter chapter five and verse 10 that he's the God of all grace. And then in first Peter five and verse 12, Peter says that there is a true grace of God in which we stand, which is to say, evidently, there's a false sense in which people can come to understand the grace of God. And we should avoid that. We should appreciate that grace does not belong to any one Protestant denomination that may hijack and maybe misapply, misappropriate grace. And on the other hand, grace is not something that we should be afraid of as people of God for fear that we may overemphasize God's involvement. It can't be done. We should cover the whole Bible and see all that it says about grace and then receive it and embrace it fully. And appreciate God's extending it to us. Somebody says grace can be defined using the acronym God's righteousness at Christ's expense. That's what grace really is. And when we get a handle of that, our lives are blessed and we're better able to serve him. What I want us to do this morning is look at several passages that say things about the grace of God and then conclude with the ultimate revelation of God's grace, helping us to come to better understand and appreciate God's grace. The true grace of God, as Peter describes in first Peter, chapter five and verse 10. Go ahead and turn your Bible to Titus chapter two. Number one, the grace of God is for everyone. 
Grace is for everyone. Titus chapter two, Paul is writing to Titus. and He says in chapter two and verse 11, for the grace of God, which brings salvation or which is bringing salvation has appeared to all men. Salvation that's brought about by grace is for everybody. It is God's will that everyone in the world comes to know and appreciate his grace. And that's what Paul hinges his argument on in Titus chapter two and verse 11. The grace of God is for all people everywhere. Now, in the first century Roman Empire, in that world, it was built on what we might call a caste system. People were honored and people were venerated based on their gender, based on their class, based on their wealth. And when Paul and other New Testament writers say things like this, it explodes on that world to say God doesn't care about those distinctions. Everybody stands on the same level playing field before God. And so Paul would say there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. But if you're in Christ, you're all one. Galatians 3, 28. There's no Greek or barbarian. There's no circumcised or uncircumcised slave or free. Christ is all and in all. Colossians 3 and verse 11. God's grace is for everybody. And everyone needs it. That's the point. We need to see ourselves on the same level playing field. And all of us stand in need of the grace of God. There is none that does good. There's none righteous. No, not one. Romans 3, 9 through 11. Why? Because all have sinned and have fallen short. Of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23, everybody needs grace, even you. You see, grace isn't optional. It's not like the mints that they give you after you eat at Olive Garden. Take it or leave it, and it doesn't really change the experience much. No, you need the grace of God. Without it, you won't know God as you should. Your relationship with God and my relationship with him is greatly hindered by our inability to appreciate grace for what it really is. Paul says the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared for all people. Now, Paul is not saying in Titus chapter two and verse 11 that grace is universalism, that everybody is going to be saved. But this is God's universal invitation. Everybody can be saved. And that's ultimately what God wants. And so in places like first Timothy chapter two and verse four, Paul will say that God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Or second Peter three and verse nine, that God is not slow concerning his promise as some count slowness. He's not that he's long suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And proof of God's desire to see that is in his making grace, salvation available to everybody everywhere. Grace is for everybody in the world and every one of us needs it. Paul tells Titus, the grace of God brings salvation and it's for you and it's for the people in Crete and it's for everybody, you know. I remember living in Hollywood, Florida in 2004, 2005. We had two major hurricanes come through. The first was Katrina and then there was Hurricane Wilma. We were without power for about two, two weeks. And there were these long lines, sometimes a mile, two miles long, where people in the city could stand in this line and get water and get the various things that they needed. It was interesting as you would go to those lines and stand and wait for water and for provisions. All the people you would see. You see your school teachers, you see business owners, you see the wealthy, you see the poor, everybody. You know why? Because we all have been hit by the same storm and we're in need of the same resources. And Paul's point in the New Testament highlights this is if we're honest with ourselves, we've all been hit by the same storm of sin. There's not a just man on the earth that does good and does not sin. Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 20. There's not a man on the earth that always does what's right and never sins. First Kings 8 and verse 46. We've all been hit by the same storm and we're all in need of the same heavenly provisions which are brought about by the grace of God. When we stood in those lines and received that water, no one was turned away. And Paul says, if you come to God on his terms and on grace, he won't turn anyone away. What's the golden text of the Bible? For God so loved who? The world. 
He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him might not perish, but enjoy everlasting life while everyone will accept that and appreciate it. It's open to everybody. Everybody needs the grace of God. I know some people, they feel like they've performed themselves beyond it. They say, yeah, grace is for everybody, but not for me. You don't know what I've done. And Paul would say in Romans 5 and verse 20, well, you've sinned a bunch. Well, well, where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. You can still receive God's grace. And for those, on the other hand, that whisper their need for God's grace because they fear that they might overdo it. Paul says God gives grace only to the humble, but the proud individual he resists. Humble yourself and acknowledge it. You need God's grace as much as anybody else. The first thing to embrace about the grace of God is it's for everyone. But here's number two. Grace brings responsibility. Look at verse 12 down through verse 14. Paul says the grace of God teaches us. The ESV says it trains us to deny ungodly lust that we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world looking for the blessed hope in the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who redeemed us from all iniquity that he might purify to himself a peculiar people or people for his own special possession zealous for good works the second thing to embrace about the grace of God is that it brings responsibility now if you're reading from the King James or the new King James you have the grace of God teaches us some translations have the grace of God instructs us or it trains us and this word means means just that it means more than just to merely lecture but he's saying the grace of God comes alongside us and helps us to be the people that we need to be the grace of God brings some responsibility with it this same word is used in second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 25 where Paul talks about us going out to people that are lost and teaching them and instructing them to bring them to where they need to be with Christ One lexicon says that this word training us means to help one to know their responsibility and to bring them along through admonishment and to teach them discipline. With those thoughts in mind, grace is far more like a personal trainer in the gym that encourages you to do more, to do better, to try harder, to push further. Then grace is like your kindergarten teacher that just wants to cuddle you and say it'll all be okay. Paul says grace is a trainer. Grace does not say, well, it'll all be okay. Don't worry about doing better or changing. He says grace does some things to teach us our responsibility. Look at the text and notice what our responsibilities are. In verse 12, he says you've got to deny some things. The grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. That means we realize that no good deeds that we can do can put God in our debt. No good deeds that we can do will make God save us. But it also means that to continue in unrighteousness. After having received the grace of God is to spit in his face. And so Paul would say in Second Corinthians chapter seven and verse one, therefore, my beloved, having received these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and of spirit, perfecting holiness in the sight of God. You see, grace says, I want to do better. I don't want to continue to sin. I realize that just because I behave better doesn't make God like me more. But I want to do what's pleasing to him. But not only that. He says we ought to live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world. Grace creates expectation. Look at verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The grace of God says, look at what he did the first time. I can't wait for him to come back again. Paul talks about all of those who love his appearing. Second Timothy, chapter four and verse eight. And then in verse 14, grace says we are those individuals that are zealous for good works. We want to do good works because of what he's done for us. We're his special people, his royal priesthood. First Peter, chapter two and verse nine. And that's brought about by grace. 
Grace does not say to us, well, there's nothing else for me to do. God's done everything. Grace says, listen, your hands must be out not only to receive, but now it's your responsibility to serve. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus in order to produce good works. Ephesians chapter two and verse 10. Grace says, I've got something that I need you to do. Grace is like the school teacher that you had. That pushes you to do better. And everybody loved this teacher. You probably had a teacher like this one pushed you to do better, would not accept mediocrity from you. But Grace is not like the teacher. Well, you never have to show up to her class and you get an A anyway. Or like the teacher that says, listen, there's one project in this class. It's either pass or fail. No, Grace says, I want you to do better. But I realize that there are human limitations. And so there'll be second and third and fourth chances. And you're always glad after you've taken Grace's class because you're better for having done so. Paul told the Corinthians, I thank God for the grace that's been given to you. First Corinthians chapter one and verse four. And we should likewise do the same. In one of the most famous inaugural speeches in our country's history, John F. Kennedy said it was January 20th, 1961, near the end of the inaugural address. He says, you remember, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And he followed that up not only with a challenge to his fellow American citizens, but to the world at large. He said to the other nations that will partner with us, ask not what America can do for you, but what we can do together for the freedom of man. His point was this. As you approach America and all of her blessings and all of her beauty, don't just come with your hands open to receive and say, is there any more where that comes from? But say, now, what can I do to put my hand to the plow? When Paul and Barnabas preached in Antioch of Pisidia on their first missionary journey, they went into the synagogue. They told those folks the good news about Jesus. And then in Acts 13 and verse 43, the Bible says they encouraged them. You continue in the grace of God. You stick with it because God's grace says, I've done great things for you, but I've got work for you to do. To shuck our responsibility, to push it aside because, well, God's just gracious and there's nothing for me to do is a misunderstanding of grace. Paul says grace is for everybody, but everybody who receives it realizes that there's something that God wants us to do. Grace brings responsibility and we've got to shoulder our load. Now, here's number three. The grace of God can be perverted. Turn your Bible to the book of Jude. And notice that this isn't a new idea. The fact that people sometimes abuse the grace of God is not anything new. It was happening in the first century and it can happen in our day as well. People take the grace of God and they twist it and they abuse it. Jude tells his audience in Jude chapter and Jude chapter one, really, in verse four, Jude says, now there are certain men who have crept in, who came in unnoticed, who were before ordained to this condemnation. He says they twist or pervert the grace of God and turn it into sensuality. Or licentiousness, lasciviousness, denying our only Lord and master, Jesus Christ. You know, Jude was saying there was a segment of people, false teachers who came in the church and they were grace preachers. They talked about the grace of God, but their grace didn't make people want to do better. They said, you know what? Since there's God's grace, you can live however you want. God doesn't care what you do. In fact, if you ever feel bad about it, just appreciate the fact that, hey, there's the grace of God. And if you notice in verse three, Jude says, contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude says, stand up against perversions of people that twist the grace of God, who misunderstand it and manipulate it and make sure you hold to the truth of it. In October of 2019, the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol confiscated 14,000 pairs of counterfeit Nikes and Jordan shoes in Long Beach, California. They said that this haul was worth up to two million dollars. 
they found that as these individuals brought these shoes over, that some of the shoes, if actually genuine, would have been worth, in some people's estimation, some would have paid $2,000 for just one pair. The board of director of patrol says in Long Beach, California, that counterfeit shoes, Nikes and Jordans, is a multi-million dollar business. People engage in it all the time as they twist that, which is genuine and true. Imagine paying $2,000 for a pair of shoes. But then imagine paying $2,000 for a pair of shoes that aren't really worth $2,000. You know, those shoes came over in a box which was labeled napkins. But in the end, that's all they were really worth. They weren't genuine. They weren't true. Now, imagine twisting and perverting the grace of God. That which no one can ultimately put a price on. Having it twisted and having it perverted and failing to appreciate it as it is in truth. People do it all the time. Paul was worried about people doing it in the first century. And so he warned them against it. Turn your Bible to Romans chapter six and notice as individuals heard about the grace of God, they were sometimes tempted to go too far. And so Paul would warn them, the grace of God does not mean that you can do whatever you desire. Romans chapter six and verse one, after Paul has said that grace abounds toward individuals in sin and Romans six, one, Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Shall we keep on sinning so that we can get more grace? Certainly not. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? In verse 14, he says, sin will no longer have dominion over you. You're not under the law, but under grace. Shall we keep sinning because we're not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. Don't you know to whoever you yield yourself servants to obey his servants you are, whether sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked. You were the servants of sin, but you've obeyed from the heart that form of teaching delivered to you. Being made free from sin, you've become the servants of righteousness. Paul says, don't let anybody twist grace. Don't let anybody deceive you about the grace of God. You need it. It's for everybody, but only receive it in truth. Someone says, how will I know when the grace of God has been perverted? How will I know when it's been twisted? Here's some telltale signs that grace, as you think about it and believe it, or as you hear about it from others, has been twisted or corrupted. Number one, grace has been perverted. Whenever someone gets you to believe that you can keep sinning habitually and purposefully and have God's approval. If you hear about grace and the grace that you're hearing about means it encourages you to sin more. That's not the true grace of God. Paul says, brothers, you've been called to freedom. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity to serve the flesh, but by love, serve one another. Any concept of grace that encourages sin is unbiblical. But here's number two. Grace is perverted whenever we say we've got to overlook sin. Somebody says, look, look, we can't. You've got sin and I've got sin. Listen, we've all got problems, don't we? And so we probably shouldn't say anything about X because, hey, we've all got problems. And Paul would say, this person is sinned. You're puffed up. You haven't mourned. You should be afflicted. First Corinthians five and verse two. Somebody says, isn't the church a hospital for sinners? Yes, but it's not a museum for sinners. We're not going to have a sin party where we just say, well, you've got sin. and I've got sin and we've got the grace of God. Paul says if that happens, it's a misunderstanding of grace. Number three, grace is perverted whenever human effort is emphasized over God's effort. Whenever it's all about what we do and what we've done and about human work and we forget Philippians 2.13, that it is God who works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. We should be saying more about what God has done, is doing and will do than about what we've done. Here's another one. Grace has been perverted whenever we think we only need it some of the time. Sometimes we talk about grace this way. We'll say, listen, you do your best. And wherever you fall short, well, grace will just sort of cover the gaps. Brethren, we are a gap. 
We need the grace of God all the time. It's not as if, well, we can just sort of fly on our own. And if, in fact, we ever get in trouble where grace just sort of, you know, grace just kind of comes in. At that point, grace steps in. Grace is in. It's either in or it's not. We don't need grace merely for our imperfections. We just need it, period. And any idea of grace that says, well, grace sort of kicks in after you've done all you can do and you sort of exerted all your human effort. Paul says the grace of God is exceedingly and abundant upon me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. First Timothy 114. You need it. I need it. And we need it all the time. Grace is perverted when anything, any topic, any subject, any doctrinal pet peeve is emphasized more than Jesus Christ. Paul says, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world was crucified to me and I to the world. In the end, Christianity is about Jesus and a failure to emphasize him above everything else is a failure to appreciate God's grace. And lastly, grace is perverted. Grace is twisted and abused whenever anybody gives us the idea that we can earn it or that we deserve it. Paul says, if you work for it, then it's reckoned according to debt and not as a gift. And nobody puts God in their debt. Romans four and verse four. After we've done all that we can do, we should say we're wicked and unprofitable servants. And we've done that, which is our duty to do. You know, sometimes people say we're saved by grace alone. There's nothing that you and I have to do. Don't worry about being baptized. You just believe in your heart. The Bible doesn't say that. An idea that says, well, all you have to do is mentally assent to some facts. And if you do anything, if you lift a finger to move in God's direction, you've nullified grace. It's unbiblical. It's not what the Bible teaches. God's grace is extended to our humanity. But we do have a responsibility. Paul would tell the church at Colossae in Colossians chapter one and verse six. He says, you known of the grace of God in truth. Peter would say there is a true grace of God. And as we embrace the truth, we should fight against perversions that twist it. Now, here's number four. We can fall from grace. There is a popular idea that once you're in God's good graces, you're there for life. And there's nothing that you and I could ever do to sort of slip out of his graces, because once you've received it, once God's grace has been extended to you, it's yours forevermore. But notice Galatians chapter five. Turn your Bible there and notice what Paul says to people who are already in Christ, who had already received the graciousness of God and were saved. He gives them a stern warning. In Galatians five and verse four, Paul says, you have severed yourself from Christ. Whoever among you would seek to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Paul says it's possible to receive God's grace, to receive God's blessings, to receive all that heaven offers and so live as to forfeit it and turn away from him. C.S. Lewis asked this question. He said, when people say I'm not afraid of God because God is good, he says, I've always wondered, have they ever been to the dentist? Because, you know, dentists do great work and they really do care about you. But pearly whites often come with pain and wrenching. There can be some hardship. His point was, listen, just because someone or something is good does not prevent them from inflicting pain when necessary and for our good. Why do you think the New Testament over and over again emphasizes that you and I need to stick with it? Why do you think the New Testament drills down on this fact of growing in grace? Second Peter 318 and holding firm and fast to the grace of God, because it is possible to so live as to turn away from Jesus and be just as lost as we were before. Every Christian, everyone who's ever been baptized into Jesus, to have his or her sins forgiven and to be added to the kingdom of God must receive this warning with true sobriety to appreciate the fact that you and I can so live as to be as lost as we were before we ever knew Jesus. 
The Hebrew writer says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 1031. We can insult the spirit of grace. Hebrews 1029. We can fail to reach it and fall short of his grace. Hebrews 1215. It's important that our heart be established with grace. Hebrews 13 and verse nine, because you and I can so live as to fall away and turn away from God. And we should appreciate this great reality. So many people think that once they're saved, they've always been that way and there's nothing God's ever going to do. God's not going to turn away from them and they live that way. And it's detrimental. The New Testament encourages us to stick with it, because if we don't, we can fall from grace. And so this is a warning. It's a warning to those of us who may not be given 100 percent, who have to be begged and pulled and prodded along in our Christianity and sort of thinking that, well, listen, it's all good. I've known people have said, listen, you've got to do better. Let's be faithful together. And with the sort of cavalier and casual spirit, they'll just sort of shrug their shoulders and say, I know if they really knew. They wouldn't be so careless. I was in preaching school and I had a friend who we were taking a test and he really didn't study and prepare. And so in one of the blanks, he just told the teacher, you know, he said, listen, I didn't study. I probably should have done better. And when the teacher handed the test back, he remarked on that question in parentheses, do better then. If you know you should do better, if you're saying, well, I know I need to do better. I probably should be coming to church more. I need to get back together and study the Bible. Do better then because the time may come when it's too late. If you know you need to obey the gospel and God's grace is extended, it's possible for those invitations to eventually expire and run out. Do what you can and what you know that you need to do and throw yourself fully into serving God because it's possible for God to extend his grace to everybody in the world so that everybody can be saved. First John three and verse 16. And for you to have known that and then miss out because you live like you really couldn't care less about it. The New Testament says grace is amazing. But we can fall from it. We need to take caution, take precaution. We need to be ready. You know how many people have fallen in Walmart and McDonald's and other establishments with that big yellow wet floor sign standing there? People just walk by it and they think, well, I've never fallen before. Floor looks dry to me. I'm safe. No problem. And they make a mistake. Now, that sign isn't there to paralyze you with fear so that you won't take another step. It's just there so that you'll watch your step. And so it is with the warnings in the New Testament. See then that we walk wisely, not as fools, redeeming the time, Ephesians 5:15, ever on our guard. It's not something that we read about that happened to them. It can happen to us. We can so live as to fall away from God's grace and be eternally lost. And the New Testament will warn us against that. Now, here's the last one. Number five. We are saved by grace. In Ephesians chapter two, and Neil talked about this some last week. And who is the church for us for those that need God's grace? Ephesians chapter two, the first three verses, Paul says we were dead in trespasses and sin. We walked according to the course of this world. We were servants of the prince of the power of the air. But notice in verse four, he says, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, are you saved? He raised us up and seated us in the heavenly places with Christ. That in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's what we needed. In verse eight, he says, for by grace, have you been saved through faith? It is not your own doing. What does that mean? It means nobody knocked on heaven's door and told God, you know what? I've got a great idea. Your people are in trouble. And maybe if you send Jesus, it's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. The entire scheme of redemption was always God's plan, not of works, lest any man should boast. Where is boasting? It's excluded. 
By the works of the law? No, by the works of faith. Romans 3.27. The grace of God, the fact that you and I can go to heaven is not because we're smarter than everybody else. It's not because God loves us more or because we're better or because we figured out the Bible better than anybody else. It should make us stand in awe and not in arrogance. Paul says the grace of God, I hope it spreads to more people so that thanksgiving may abound and the glory may go to God. Second Corinthians 415. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Second Corinthians 10, 17. We are saved by grace and we shouldn't whisper it. We should shout it because we've got no hope of being saved otherwise. Paul says no boasting allowed. You know, this word humble brag, it really wasn't a word until 2010. This man, Harris Whitler, he's a writer, a producer, and he's a comedian. And he sort of coined the term and even created a Twitter account in 2010. And then he wrote this book in 2012, Humble Brag. And he talks about how we can become proficient in our arrogance. His subtitle is The Art of False Modesty. And it's a sort of comical book, at least until you see yourself in it. Listen, we become very skilled at sort of boasting and bragging in ourselves. The way he defines humble brag is it's our ability to boast and to brag, but just sort of costume it and camouflage it as an apology or as a complaint. He gives some examples. He says we may say something like, I'm so sorry to keep yawning. It's hard being an international traveler. It's hard to do Peru and Rome and German, Germany and all in two weeks. Or somebody might post on social media. He says, oh, I just hate spinning gum. Who would spit out gum on the red carpet? You know, we just get so used to boasting and bragging. And Paul says, now, when it comes to the grace of God, no boasting allowed. Where is boasting? It's because of what God's done. You know, we do pew packers and I've taught the kids that song and you've taught it to your loved ones and you know it. How do you become a Christian? You hear the gospel. You believe it and you repent and you confess and you're immersed and God will forgive you. And if you count the live faithful till death, you say there are six steps. But all of that must be prefaced with mention of God's grace. Listen, you can't make God save you and neither can I. Just because we've done those things, what ignites all of that is the grace of God. Somebody says, yes, well, but the grace of God's implied. It just goes without being said. No, it must always be said. The Jews said in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem conference, we have concluded that we will be saved by the grace of God, just like the Gentiles. There's this need to appreciate the grace of God and to realize we are saved by it, not by grace alone. Paul says in this text, it is through faith, but grace is first. Embrace the grace of God because it's our only hope. In the end, grace boils down to a person. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 40, when Jesus was just a young boy, it says the grace of God was upon him and he grew in wisdom and in stature. John talks about his entry into the world and he says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the father. He was full of grace and truth. We've all received from him the fullness of grace and grace upon grace. John 1:16. the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. You could read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Not once does Jesus ever use the word, but there's not one occasion in his life when he interacted with people without it. He wasn't someone that just simply talked about the grace of God. He embodied it. If grace dressed up in flesh and bones, it would be Jesus Christ. How gracious is God? He's gracious enough to come to this world. To die in our place and to perform the greatest rescue mission the world has ever known. Gracious enough to raise the dead, to teach the ignorant and correct the mistaken. He's gracious enough to say, my life for yours. And I'll sacrifice myself so that you can be saved.
Jesus is the revelation of God's grace. In the end, what is the grace of God? It's a person. Paul says, you have heard of the grace of God. He says, don't you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. And the question for us is, do we know it? If you were to take a list, if you Google any list of the top spiritual hymns of the last century or two, the one that often is in that list, no matter what list you consult, is John Newton's Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. What's the next part? That saved a a wretch like me. What's a wretch? We don't use that word. It's sort of archaic old English. A wretch It's that which is worthless. It's that which is vile. It would be amazing. It really would. If God just saved one sinner, if God let one person who has violated his holiness into the halls of heaven, that would be amazing. But the grace of God is amazing because it won't just be one. It is whosoever will. Based on what Jesus has done as the revelation of God's grace, he saves a wretch like me. The grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying, and it's worthy of acceptance everywhere. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm chief. His grace is truly amazing. We never outgrow it. We simply need to do our best to get our hands around it and embrace it. If you don't know the grace of God, it's extended towards you. Paul says it's for everybody. You haven't done too much of anything. You haven't been doing anything too long to live outside of his bounds. Paul would say, if it worked for me, if it worked in my life to save me, it'll save you. Come to Jesus in faith. Turn away from sin and be immersed in water to have your sins forgiven. When you rise from those waters, you won't say, I finally figured it out. I've earned it, God. You owe me heaven. You'll say, thank God for his amazing grace. And if you've laid hold on it in the past and you know in your heart you've been cheating him, you haven't been doing all that you should and that you could do. You haven't been bearing your responsibility. Grace is not your kindergarten teacher. She's your personal trainer. She's saying you've got to step it up. You've got to be faithful. You can't go to heaven on anybody's coattails. You can't spit in God's face and have him smile on yours. Grace says make it right and repent. We're going to be led in the song to encourage us. If this is your invitation, God graciously waits to receive you as we stand and as we sing.